When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Find easy ways to store your outdoor tools and accessories at Menards. Suncast provides high quality and easy to assemble storage. Suncast storage sheds are the perfect solution for organizing and protecting your outdoor tools and equipment. Plus, their all-weather construction is low maintenance. Explore all our outdoor storage options in-store and on Menards.com. And check out more of our great deals going on now at Menards. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center broadcasting live from Santa Monica here in the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, please be seated. We've got a great show for you. Um, and we're very p- glad to be announcing that this is the start of our fifth season. Um, it's gone by very fast. And um, we've, we've been glad to have you along for the ride. Um, and our, our special guest today, we're going to do a review of um, some of the major um, internet cases um, from the last year. And we have with us Mark Sableman, and he's with Thompson Coburn. And Mark, are you with us? I'm here, Bennett. And congratulations on your fifth year. That's terrific. Thank you. Um, I still, God, it seems like yesterday we had um, Chris Olson from the FTC on for our first show. And, um, and actually, our first anniversary show, we had a guy named Walter O'Brien on. And he... Um, his life has been turned into a TV show, um, Scorpion, on CBS, and that just got renewed. So who knows, Mark, this could be your route to, <laughs> to bigger fame and fortune. Um, All right. So, Mark, you're, you're, um, you're, you're speaking to us from St. Louis, um, where your firm is based. Tell us about your firm. Uh, we're just a large regional firm here in, the, uh, in, in, in St. Louis. We also have offices in, in Chicago and Los Angeles. But... Uh, we're fo- my personal focus, Bennett, has been on Internet law since back in 93 and 94 when the Internet first surfaced. Uh, so uh, uh, that's my focus, and that's kind of why I'm interested in the issues that you wanted to talk about today. Yes, and you have – I like your blog. Um, tell me about your blog. Well, it's called Internet Law Twists. Uh, when I was teaching Internet Law at Washington University Law School uh, for a long time, I realized as we got into the, cl- uh, the classes – that every subject of internet law is essentially the uh, the same as it is in regular law, but there's always some twist. Uh, for example, content regulation, the rules that you have that govern what you can publish, what you can say, are the typical rules of libel and tortious interference and, and so forth. But on the internet, there's a twist. We have section 130, which exempts intermediaries from liability. Intermediaries in the brick-and-mortar world 
are liable for the comments they publish, but intermediaries are not in the Internet world. So that's the twist. You go into copyright. Uh, copyright law is the same on the Internet as it is in the brick and mortars world, but there's a twist. Congress passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which has a special notice and takedown rule that allows intermediaries to avoid liability if they follow all the, you know, dot all their I's and cross all their T's under Section 512 of the, of the DMCA. You know, trademark law, it's the same as it is in the real world, but there's special rules for domain names and special procedures for domain names. So it goes on and on. And what I've tried to do in my blog is write about both recent developments and some of those major Internet law twists, how things are a little bit different on the Internet. You still need to know the business law basics, but you also need to know the Internet law twists. And that's what I try to focus my writing about. This is a good point. And the blog has a good look and feel. So it's um, Internet law twists and turns. And so on your last post on that blog was um, talking about the um, top five internet law shifts of 2014, and um, so this isn't the Golden Globe. We won't read all the nominees, but why don't you start? Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you start off with one of them? Well, I think the Riley case, uh, the Riley versus California case, was a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in June, decided June 25th by the U.S. Supreme Court. 9-0, a unanimous decision, which we don't always get these days in our divided Supreme Court. True. And it was unexpected, really. I think a lot of people felt this court is going to be very conservative. They're going to be very careful uh, and make incremental changes. They're not going to do anything drastic. And there seemed to be you know, precedent for that. And you know, a few years ago in the Jones case involving GPS devices, they kind of made a a narrow ruling. They said, uh, uh, you know, this is unconstitutional in this case, but we're not making broad rules. Mm -hmm. And that's generally the way the court acts. But suddenly in Riley, it involved a search and seizure, an arrest, a search incident to an arrest where normally police have broad powers. And the search incident to the arrest here grabbed cell phones, smartphones. And the court could have addressed this on narrow grounds. They could have stuck to the general Fourth Amendment search and seizure rule that, golly, police have broad powers. They have to protect themselves. Anything that's on your person when you're arrested is fair game. Instead, they really made what I think was a remarkable broad rule. And I think it's a sea change in the way things are going to be viewed now and in the future. And they said cell phones are different. Uh, Sure, you can seize the guy's wallet. You can seize what's in his pocket generally. You can seize what's you know sitting right next to him on the seat of his car. But a cell phone is different. And by saying a cell phone is different, and there's a lot of things they said in the course of that, which I can get into, by saying that, I think they all of a sudden set a whole new course for privacy law. And they said, gosh, telephones, everybody has cell phones. Cell phones are dramatically different. They're different in the quantity of information they have. Right. They're different in the quality of information. They're different because of their pervasiveness in society. And for all of these reasons, cell phones are different. So I think now there's a whole new analysis, a whole new uh, category of privacy protection that there wasn't before. And I think this is going to affect a lot of 
the court cases on privacy and the future, a lot of the analysis of privacy, uh, and I think it's going to be a big thing. It seemed, you know, in, in the prior case law that led up to this, where courts were trying to decide what can a police officer do during these kind of dicey moments you know, when they're apprehending someone. And a, a great amount of consideration was given to you know, basically you know, securing the crime scene, making sure evidence is maintained, and more importantly, you know, making sure that they're able to um, ensure their own safety. And if you look at it, think about it, well, is there a knife? Is there this? Is there that? Not much of those items require further investigation once you've identified what it is. Whereas the cell phone is unique in that that actually is further information that's in there um, that beyond the actual device itself. And so it seemed that the court said, well, once you have it and you've secured it, you can go through the trouble of getting a warrant. I think all those things you said are true, Bennett, but I really think this, the reach of the case is even broader than that because – and just as Alito points out this in a little bit of his concurring opinion, just as Alito says, you know – we keep saying this is to protect the officer. We keep saying this is about you know the things that are necessarily right there that you have to mm-hmm. attend to. But frankly, we go broader. We let them grab evidence that is not necessary for the officer's protection. For example, in the in the example you just gave, right? They have to they have to make sure the guy doesn't have any guns or knives on his body, but they don't have to take his wallet out and look through everything in his wallet. And under existing law, which continues, they can look at his wallet. They can look at it for clues, and they can use those things against him. So it goes beyond safety. And I think what really happened here is if they followed their preceding law, they would have said, well, a cell phone's like a wallet. It's an enhanced wallet. Right. It not only has ID in it, not only has notes in it, not only has pictures in it, it has lots of those. But what they did that I think is, is noteworthy is they broke with analogies. They said, you know what? It kind of does look like a wallet. And if you apply our normal mode of analysis and use analogies, it's like a wallet. But frankly, we, we reject that analogy. We call it, I, I think they called it a, a strained analogy or an analogy that crumbles. And they said it crumbled because cell phones are just qualitatively and quantitatively different with their huge storage capacity, with the fact that we keep so much in there, so many distinct types of information. And, and, I, and what they said at one point is the sum of an individual's private life can be reconstructed from the cell phone. It, you can't do it from merely a wallet or a purse or a purse contents. So I think they, they were – that's what to me is significant. They were – Stepping beyond the analogies, and they were saying there is something qualitatively different with a large quantity of digital information, the way it's kept today. And what that means, I think, is this has implications beyond cell phones, but to other things that have large quantities of digital information, which may include tablets and laptops, right. may include cloud computing you know, or your cloud storage. So I think this is going to be litigated a lot in the future, and it's going to require judges to kind of take a new look. The old wooden analogies to the, uh, uh, to the brick-and-mortar world are kind of out the window. We're now recognizing digital compilations as qualitatively different. Now, in, in that context, you know, we've had um, 
past shows here, where we talked about the use of Stingray technology. How do, how do you think that squares with this decision? Boy, that that seems like a different thing to me. I, I don't I don't know, uh, but but uh, I, I mean the, the thing about the Riley case is it was a situation where normally you do have enormous powers. A search incident to an uh, arrest considered to be an exigent circumstance in right. criminal law, you generally have very broad powers. As I understand Stingray, and I think you know more about it, uh, Bennett. Uh, there's not even that situation. It, it appears to be a kind of a classic intrusion, uh, a, a classic uh, digital surveillance. So I would think it, it's it's outside of this category. Yeah, I mean it's just it's just a data sweep, really. And yeah, to to me that's very intrusive and uh, very hard to justify. And it's interesting. And apparently there's a there's a, a publication a report that the FBI doesn't believe they need a warrant for this. So. I imagine this is something that will be um, <laughs> might be on next year's update. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're going to say, "Well, this is you know targeted a particular time and place, and there's some justification." I, I'm, it seems like a little stretch. I, I think what they could say is the uh, the the Riley case was talking about uh, a seizure of a digital record of every aspect of people's lives, from the mundane to the intimate, as the Supreme Court put it. And that's what seemed highly intrusive to the court. And I think there's a practical aspect here. Let's face it. When the typical guy is arrested and, uh, uh, and the, the police search his motorcycle jacket for knives and guns and they, uh, they search his blue jeans for uh, marijuana or records of illicit transactions, if you remember the Supreme Court, you don't feel particularly threatened by any of that. Once they, they stop somebody and pull up his cell phone and start looking at everything that's recorded on the cell phone, even a, you know, a, a professional type like a Supreme Court justice has got to say, wow, that looks highly intrusive. And I think that was a practical factor in the Riley case. And one thing that was interesting in, in, in how you described it is that so often some of the early cases involving the Internet involves some, somewhat of a stretched analogy to something in the offline world. And, you know, what I, I give the court credit here is for recognizing, as you, as you stated, uh, we're not, we're not going to play the analogy game. It, let's, just, let's just accept that this is different. Yeah, that, that, that's something you don't see too often in, in, uh, in legal decisions. We're, we're kind of uh, slaves to analogy as, as lawyers and judges. And I, I went through the decision last night and I saw four different places where they just basically said, yeah, it kind of looks like something else, but we are not going to follow that analogy. Uh, in one case, they said, um, you know, if you're male, you know, if you have letters on your body, and, and they're going to be searched incident to an arrest, and those letters could be incriminating and, and tough. But then they say, come on, most people cannot lug around every piece of mail they've received for the past several months, <laughs> every picture they have taken, or every book or article they've read. Uh, if they did, they have to drag behind them a trunk of the sort, you know. Uh, right, they're pushing a shopping cart, and they're usually yeah. helping themselves. And Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's good. I think it was a recognition that, that in some cases – Digital is qualitatively different and, and has to be recognized as that. And that's what people are going to be citing in this case far for, for, for years to come, I think. So uh, another big development, it seems, um, and that you highlight, is the um, potential, I don't know if it's demise, but 
you know, you're free to use them, but they're not very enforceable. Uh, the browse wrap agreements. Yeah, I think the browser app still has the place. Uh, if you have a uh, a mere informational website, then I think the the browser app, which means essentially that you don't ever get explicit assent from a uh, a web user. You simply the web user simply goes to your site and sees at the bottom terms of use. Right. May or may not click on it. The terms of use often are things that that are of interest only to people who really want to pursue something further. They want to, uh, you know, uh, use your, your content for some reason or they want to um, uh, do business with you in some way. Those terms of use are useful then. But they are not binding everyone because the courts have been more and more clear, and I think these two decisions in, in two, uh, 2014 that I highlighted are excellent decisions that help clarify that. Uh, in order to have an enforceable contract, you have to have either direct assent, such as your signature, your click-through, or some kind of constructive assent, which is that it was so much in your face you could not have known, you could not but have known uh, as you went forward that, that you were being subject to these terms. And in the, the Wynn versus uh, Barnes & Noble case that the Ninth Circuit decided earlier this year, uh, there simply was nothing more than a, a browse wrap. There were terms of use links at the bottom of the page, but it was never in your face. It never required you to say yes. Even when you checked out and bought something, there was no reminder or statement, hey, you'd better go back and check the terms of use. Uh, What Barnes & Noble was essentially hoping there is that every web user is so sophisticated that they will necessarily think before they do anything on a website, gosh, I had better look at those terms of use. And that's just not realistic, and the Ninth Circuit said so. And um, well, one thing that is realistic is that we're going to take a short break, and um, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. All-Inclusive Market is the luxurious five-star resort of digital marketing. Welcome to All-Inclusive Marketing. Engage with All-Inclusive Marketing's award-winning strategists to ramp up your online profitability and brand exposure, driving new customer acquisitions, increased sales, and stronger buyer retention. Another mojito, please? All-Inclusive Marketing's full-service digital and performance marketing accommodates every brand, specializing in retail, travel, and software as a service. What a great room. The A in All-Inclusive Marketing means award winning leadership, excellence and results, as well as an A rating by the Better Business Bureau. For reach, engagement and conversion, it's all-inclusive marketing. Reserve a free consultation today at allinclusivemarketing.com slash radio. 
Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. We're talking with Mark Silverman about his article on the five kind of game-changing decisions of the last year in, in Internet law. And we were talking about um, some recent case law on browser app agreements. And um, Mark, you were just kind of summarizing the um, Barnes & Noble case. and But there was a more interesting case, or an equally interesting case, that came down just a few weeks ago involving Safeway. Yeah, the Safeway case was, was very interesting because um, it involves something that I think a lot of, of companies would love to be able to do. What Safeway said in their terms of use is, hey, user, uh, thanks for signing in. Thanks for agreeing to our terms. And by the way, you've agreed not only to today's terms, but to anything we may say in the future. Any change we may make in the future, you are subject to. And frankly... I don't know a single client of ours or our company out there that wouldn't love to say that. Right. And, 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 and yet, when it went to the court, the court said, you can't do this. You can't subject somebody to anything that you may at some point do in the future. If you're going to change the terms, you have to get explicit consent. And, and if, you think, if you think about it as to some of the situations that might happen, Let's say you sign up for a, at a website and, and they say, we're going to use your information only for the following purposes that, that you consent to, and we may use it for some marketing for ourselves, but we're spelling it all out so you know. And you say, okay, under those terms, I'll give them my highly confidential information or my mm-hmm. personal information that I value. I'll give that to them today. Two years from now, they say, by the way um, – we're not doing very well as a company, but we found a data broker that would love to have all the data we have on our customers. And we're now going to sell all of our personal information from all of our customers to the data broker. Who's going to use it for all sorts of things? And you're going to get bombarded with emails. You're going to get bombarded with all sorts of you know, terrible and offensive offers. And, and everybody in the world is in the data broker business is going to have your information. And by the way, you can send it to that because we're now changing our privacy policy and I got your consent to anything we say in the future. Right. So that's obviously unfair. Uh, the court said that. The court said that when you make your changes, you have to get consent. And this is something I think we've all known. It really hasn't been in a, a judicial opinion um, uh, as explicit as a Safeway decision last month. But it's an important thing. When, when I, we talk to our clients about privacy policies, we make it very clear that it's best to have the, the uh, broadest possible uh, policy at the outset because making changes is very problematic. Exactly. If, you do, if you do make a change, you're going to have to somehow isolate the information you got subject to your old policy 
from the information you got subject to your new policy. And that's, you know, a, a data uh, nightmare, but unfortunately it's the way things work these days. And the big issue here, I mean, I know Safeway try to argue, well, they can come back and check on the website to see if there's been any change, but they just thought that was too much of a burden to put on consumers. And the, the, the big issue was, you know, have they received notice? And that's Safeway's job. Yeah, I mean, the court said, look, you cannot bind customers to unknown future contract terms. Uh, consumers cannot assent to terms that do not yet exist. And I think it's kind of hard to fault that reasoning. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, they have consumers have other things to do than keep checking every website they've agreed to <laughs> you know, once a week to see if they've agreed to something different. Well, and of course, we know the real issue with, with website terms is people don't read them. And, and that's why uh, I think it's been funny that this year we've also had a couple of these experiments to see if people are really uh, reading the website terms. And one that caught my eye uh, a few months ago, somebody opened up an experimental Wi-Fi hotspot in London and said, hey, if you want to sign up for this free Wi-Fi, uh, just sign up and, uh, and click here. Uh, to our terms. Well, I, I was actually in London around this time, and I, I think I signed up for some uh, Wi-Fi in various restaurants and cafes, and I hope I wasn't in one of these cafes, because if you clicked on their terms and, uh, and conditions, you were agreeing, quote, to assign your firstborn child to us for the duration of eternity. <laughs> and of course, many, many people clicked on those terms. And I think we all know that that's the way life works. Nobody reads all those terms, particularly on a small cell phone screen. But when people do the, uh, you know, give us your firstborn child or, or you hereby assign your immortal soul to us, it really highlights what a crazy uh, contract, uh, electronic contract system we have these days. Yeah, so the question is, is who would try to enforce that? Would it be the Wi-Fi operator or would some mother be going back to them saying, here he is, he's yours? Well, I, I, I don't think it's probably likely to be enforced, but and I think perhaps, at least under U.S. law, it would be considered an unconscionable term. But the advice I've given people that if you happen to sign up for one of those things, I recommend highly that you go back to a great piece of American literature, the uh, Stephen Vincent Benet short story, The Devil and Daniel Webster, where uh, Daniel Webster valiantly fought, tried a case against the devil who had bought the soul of a poor New Hampshire farmer. But I really kind of hope we don't have to get into that kind of litigation these well, let's days. Let's hope not. Um, this is breaking on the news. Um, Iran news agency prosecutors have the say that detained Washington Post reporter has been ch- indicted. Charges unknown. So, oh, but yeah, more um, um, prosec- you know, persecution of the press, it seems, is going to be the theme of the year. So um, you also have some other key areas that, that we, we covered. One was the, the value of data collection. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting. I've been following the the data privacy debate, as I know you have been it since it really began back, uh, I think in two thousand eight or two thousand and nine, with behavioral advertising and the the earliest form of behavioral advertising. Um, um, uh, you know, deep. Um, uh, all of a sudden, the, the name's oh, deep packet inspection. 
deep packet inspection, actually, exactly. And and uh, throughout the debate, it began with you know hearings that Cong- then Congressman Ed Markey held uh, back then on deep packet inspection. Congressman Rich Boucher, Rich Boucher was involved, and soon it became you know a, a, a focus of the FTC, the Commerce Department, various data protection bills. Everything was we got to protect privacy. We got to protect privacy from big data, and big data was kind of held up as a as a terrible. Uh, um, oppressor of some kind. And I think what finally broke through this year when the White House uh, did a broad uh, you know, reach out for comments and a, a report that uh, came out in, uh, I believe, April or May, they said, you know what, we've got to be careful. We can't make big data the devil. There are many benefits of data. And I've written about this, and I've uh, submitted comments to various agencies about this. So I think it was a breakthrough to finally recognize the value of data. To some extent, I think it echoes what uh, Justice Kennedy said in a, in a major Supreme Court case a few years ago involving um, the um, uh, collection of uh, pres- data of doctors' prescribing habits. Um, some states in New England tried to regulate that. And Justice Kennedy said, look, we have to understand uh, facts are, are a form of uh, – are the beginning points for speech. They are essential to advance human knowledge and conduct human affairs. And data is simply lots of facts. Lots of facts can be good. Lots of facts can be beneficial. And therefore, we have to recognize there are two sides to the data privacy debate. There is the concern about uh, over-collection – uh, over misuse and 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 uh, overbroad transfers of data, but there's also a concern that we have to allow data collection, use, and transfers for all the beneficial things that it does. And the White House report, somewhat surprisingly, I think, and I think perhaps by, because of the the privacy advisor at the time, Nicole Wong, who's had a broad background in industry as well as a you know a lot of uh, you know, uh, great policy analysis and privacy, the White House recognized this balance and and said throughout our privacy regulation, we have to look both at the benefits and the detriments of data collection. And since then, I think there have been some uh, efforts to actually put together some instruments where people can judge the cost-benefit analysis or the, the benefits versus the detriments. And I and, – and I, it's sort of similar in some ways to a uh, a concept of proportionality that's been worked into European data law and and needs more attention on our side. Well, I, I looked at um, you know the White House report that they came up with, and they had some really interesting examples of how big data had been used. Um, so, for example, with Medicare, they'd be used big data to identify the highest risk um, providers for in terms of waste, fraud, and abuse. And in, in, in doing so in real time, they've already stopped, prevented, or identified 115 million in fraud um, payments. And uh, LAPD is using it to do predictive um, policing. Um, they, they can identify where, where a crime may occur down to 500 square feet. Um, and then we were talking offline about um, the German World Cup team using big data to actually reduce the amount of time it took um, before they passed the ball from 3.4 to 1.2 seconds and, 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 the, and route to the World Cup championship. 
No, those are all fascinating. And I think there's a lot of stories both about the benefits of big data and also the the detriments of having such a broad privacy law that it, it inhibits a lot of uh, collection, use, or dissemination of data. I was actually spoke on this issue at a uh, conference at Webster University put on it in Geneva last spring. And one of the co-presenters was a, a, a very interesting guy. He was a brilliant photographer who did detailed photographic uh, studies of various institutions. And one of them was of a, a Swiss religious uh, organization. He got full permission to go in there, be part of them, record all that they were doing, take a lot of photographs. And he put it, put it together in a, in a wonderful book that had a lot of uh, photographs that really gave you a feel for what this institution was all about. But then I think the institution had some second thoughts and said, gee, maybe this isn't a totally favorable portrait of ours. So one or two individuals went to court in Zurich and said, my picture is in the book and I feel my privacy was invaded. The court in Zurich then enjoined the book from being disseminated. So this brilliant book that this brilliant photographer put together over a year of work is now censored and cannot be seen or by anyone or published. Why? Because of this kind of overbroad emphasis on privacy. Right. So there's two aspects. There's the benefits of data, as in all the examples you gave, and in many other examples. And there's also the detriments of assigning such a high value to privacy that you're enjoining or prohibiting very useful speech, very useful information. But it's at the same time, um, there's also what's often referred to in this debate as the creepiness factor. Um, so you take, for example, the um, s- story about um, there's a woman who um, Target had sent coupons for kind of um, pregnancy-related um, purchases. And her father was furious that they did this since uh, he didn't know that she was pregnant. And it turns out you know, she was. And Target did it totally based on a predictive model on the, uh, based on the purchases she was she was making, you know that you know, be able to draw those type of conclusions is somewhat creepy. And then you throw in the whole NSA factor, where um, you know the NSA has the ability to the new data center is going to have um, twelve exabytes of data, which is the equivalent of one point oh nine nine trillion megabytes. Um, you know that's just that makes people fearful. Oh, I, I think the privacy debate is going to be a big one going forward, and, and there's no question about it. And there's very sensitive issues on both sides. I'm just happy, though, that we're 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 judging the benefits issue, uh, benefits of data issue, as well as the the sensitivity of data. They are both part of this, and and that's going to be the the real uh, dilemma. And I think that you don't go in there with a hammer on privacy. You don't go in there with a hammer on data collection. Everything here is going to have to be a judgment of balance, uh, proportionality, understanding the value of data, understanding the value of privacy. And I think in some ways it's going to be a, a far more difficult and, and uh, uh, you know, battle and, and policy decision. Some of the early simplistic uh, omnibus data privacy bills that were put forth by Representative Boucher and I was there kind of at the key moment uh, at a conference in uh, South Carolina where where he announced the first omnibus data privacy bill. Then uh, the Kerry McCain bill followed. Uh, There's a number of others. 
those haven't really gotten anywhere, I think partly because of the gridlock in Congress, of course, but also partly because it's really a difficult issue. And, and a simple, uh, uh, you know, meat chopper, uh, you know, big, uh, big emphasis on privacy bill isn't right for all situations, nor is allow big data to do whatever they want rights. It's right. got to be a very, very carefully tailored legislation, probably – and different ones in surveillance, different ones with sensitive information such as healthcare, different ones for commercial information, different ones for the business-to-business market than the business-to-consumer market. You know, I tell people when they, they ask why hasn't there been um, privacy you know, legislation approved by Congress, and I asked them to picture a conference room, and I said, okay, now who do you put down, who's at the table to negotiate? You know, there's all these different groups. You have, you know, the publishers. You have the um, the ad ad agencies. You have the big data people. You have the you know the privacy people. You have the you know online um, you know retailers. I mean, there's so many different people involved in this debate that it's you know how do you get consensus? Absolutely. I think that's a great, great way to look at it because there are so many interest groups involved. And it's not just interest groups, but it's also interest in some cases where there aren't the groups, but they have to be fully considered. So um, it, it definitely is going to be. And it, it, the debate has been reignited today, and oh, actually, I should say yesterday. Um, President Obama became the um, President Obama. Would became the first president since FDR to actually go to the Federal Trade Commission. And, wow! Um, yeah. So, although I mean, it's not like <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm, why don't I go to the FTC for lunch? Is you know the first thing that comes to mind um, for most policymakers. But but, um, but it's ten blocks away. You might as well. It's true, and they do have that nice new conference facility done by our alma mater, George Tombaugh, and um, so. The he launches um, his new privacy initiatives there just yesterday, and so it, it seems that one thing uh, President Obama is doing with you know, his upcoming State of the Union is trying to um, jumpstart that debate. Um, I think it's a difficult, as I said, just because of all the interest groups. I just don't see anyone um, taking charge of it. And I don't know if Obama can, you know, since he, he, they don't control either house, if he's in that position to do so. I think it's a bipartisan issue. There is a bipartisan uh, privacy coalition, and one of the House Republican leaders, I think, was himself a uh, victim of, uh, uh, you know, of identity theft, and obviously is interested in, in, in privacy. But it's not so much the partisanship and, and the traditional divide; it's just the stickiness of the issue. Right. And I think I think you were there, Bennett, if I recall, at the original deep packet inspection hearings, and that was back when it was, seemed simple, and and there was a a one little kind of there were two or three evil parties that were doing this deep packet inspection, and Congressman Markey could yell at them, and they could eventually go bankrupt. But there are so many variations and details and different ways of data collection since then that it's far more complex. Well, and that's, but, and it's a, it's a vicious circle because the longer this it develops, the more complex it gets, the more people and layers get involved. So 
my very first show, you know, five years ago, um, we were talking to Chris Olson from the FTC. And, you know, the FTC was ready to regulate in 2000. Um, they were going to implement the fair privacy principles. And then, you know, the election happened. And so they put it on, on ice. And then you now have the, you know, you have the Obama FTC ready to act. And um, but first they did these roundtables on privacy, you know, across um, you know, in Washington and not one out in Berkeley. And um, I asked Chris, I said, was part of that just to kind of get your arms around the issue? Because um, it's you know it seems like you maybe didn't fully appreciate how much things had changed. And he said that's precisely it. You know, as we dove into the issue, we realized so much had changed in eight years. And so how we approached it, we couldn't approach it from the same mindset as, you know, we couldn't just pick up where we left off. And I think each time we put this issue down and pick it back up, it just gets more complex. Well, that's right. And I think it was John Podesta and Nicole Wong whose contribution this year was to really make sure that the the value of data was added into the analysis, which it really deserves to be, but it also makes it very complex. So we only got a few minutes left. Uh, I know you have to go. But um, if people want more information about you or your firm, where should they go? Well, I encourage them to come to my, my blog. It's internettwist.com. Um, uh, yeah, internetlawtwist.com, excuse me. Um, uh, or, or my firm website, thompsoncoburn.com. We're doing some uh, webinars in the future on, on uh, website uh, law issues. would certainly welcome anyone to uh, sign into those. I've also got a new edition coming out of my Internet Law Twist booklet that has some of these major Internet Law Twist uh, uh, explanations and, and some practical pointers. So if they contact me at msableman.thompsoncoburn.com, I'd be happy to send that out. All right. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on board um, to launch our fifth year, and um, best of luck to you and the firm. Well, thanks so much, and again, congratulations on your fifth season. Thank you. Um, We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll wrap up our first show of our fifth year. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. ShipStation helps online retailers ship orders faster. It's so easy to set up and use. ShipStation gives you tools to automatically import, manage, and ship your orders in the most cost-efficient way. Save money with the best USPS rates possible, as well as a free USPS account. ShipStation integrates with all the most popular e-commerce platforms and shipping carriers. Get shipping done no matter where you sell or how you ship. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial. Go to ShipStation.com slash WebmasterRadio now. Shipping Nirvana starts here. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Introducing Rumble. 
the Smart Mobile Management System, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. This is Bennett Kelly, and again, thanks to Mark Salman for a great job. Um, it was really interesting talking to him about the um, developments of 2014. There's still some other developments of 2014 we'll be fleshing out in the next um, show or two. Um, some major developments. Um, there's a whole um, swath of new laws that have come into effect, and um, one of them is actually here in California, the... Um, what is being known as the eraser law. And it's uh, the law that allows um, minors to re- remove their content from social media um, subject to certain restrictions. And we're going to talk about that in a little more detail um, in probably in another segment. Um, but, but there's also some other developments I want to highlight um, that are going on right now as we speak. We have one issue that we've spent a lot of time covering has been um, the development of broadband in the U.S., particularly you know, cities such as Chattanooga, where they have the Gigabyte City, and um, and the, we've also had someone on to talk about the, the tension between um, municipal broadband providers and um, the major cable companies who are trying to prevent competition from them, and have actually passed laws in 20 different states to restrict the ability of municipalities to offer um, competing broadband. And um, the president is actually speaking today in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, um, because they are a place that has a municipal broadband and are, are doing it quite well. And so he um, has an agenda to um, try to um, address, to um, preempt those state laws um, that restrict competition, and he wants to promote greater competition, greater investment in municipal broadband. Because you know, he, in his video, he has a you know a, an interactive tablet that shows the broadband speeds of of our competitors, and they're much higher. And so, this is an area we've been lagging for some time. Um, I'm very excited about the developments that have been happening in places like Chattanooga. And with Google Fiber in Kansas City, and um, so I think the, the president is right to highlight this issue. And um, I haven't heard what he said his speech in Cedar Rapids yet, but um, we're looking to see what type of initiatives come out of that. Um, you know, we this is something we follow very closely you know, on this show, and so it, it is a major development. But there's one other development I would be remiss in um, not talking about, and that is. Um, in talking about the tragedy last week in France. Um, we've had on our show um, Delphine Heigman, um from Reporters Without Borders. We've also had people on our show from the Committee to Protect Journalists. And um, we can only say that what happened um, last week in Paris is just an abomination. 
Um, it is something completely inconsistent with living in a free society. And, um, you know, we, we join everyone else, you know, who in sharing the, the sadness, the outrage, the mourning, and the sympathy to the victims and their families. Um, but I must also highlight two important points. Um, this is not, sadly, not unique. Um, if, for example, last year, there were in the neighborhood of um, 66 journalists killed, and I believe something in the around 19 of them were netizens. And right now, in going on in Saudi Arabia, there is a blogger who has been sentenced to 10 years and 100, excuse me, 10 years and 1,000 lashes for blogging. Um, he has a political blog, and they somehow consider this to be blasphemy. And he is be, being lashed 50 times every Friday, um, starting last Friday. Um, 50 lashes. I mean, it is barbaric, and this is being done by an ally. And so he's going to be whacked um, all those times um, for the next 20 weeks. And um, for, for blogging. And so what's important to remember is that the lesson of Paris isn't that what happened there was awful. It's also that it, it happens far too frequently in other places as well. And, you know, with the news coming out of Tehran of the arrest of the Washington Post reporter, excuse me, the, uh, the indictment of the Washington Post reporter, and now the, um, you know, the, the lashing, you know, 50 lashes of um, Rafe, Rafe Badawi, um, who is just only, he had an online forum for public debate, and um, for that he was accused of insulting Islam, and for that, our our you know ally, um, Saudi Arabia, who we sent troops to the Gulf to defend when Iraq invaded Kuwait, um, they are um, lashing him fifty times a, a day um, on a weekly basis. So it's just an outrage, and um, I think you know we have to be resolute, and we have to speak out. Because that is what we are in our free society, and you know, it's interesting. There was um, the same week as the uh, attack in Paris. There was this um, kerfuffle in Frederick County, Maryland, where a local um, county official had said he had sent a letter to the local reporter that he was not allowed to use his name without his permission, and that he couldn't write any stories about him without his permission. Which is a ridiculous thing for a um, public official to say that the press can't mention him without his approval. And um, the local paper uh, went out of their way to, they actually had a headline that had his, his name three times to make a point. But they also quite eloquently addressed um, you know, the accusations that he was charging. And, and it really was an attack on a free press and an open society. And um, so the debate has been, the last week or so, has been very vivid, very much in, in our presence, in our minds here. And, um, you know, we in 
America sometimes take that for granted, and and sometimes clearly some people, even our own citizens, don't fully appreciate the meaning of a free press. But um, you know, I think when we look at what is happening elsewhere, when we see bloggers going to prison, we see bloggers getting flogged, um, you know, it's extreme, um, you know, torture. Um, that simply is wrong. So. Um, hopefully some resolution will be reached. Hopefully somehow international pressure will um, force the Saudis to relent and maybe release um, Mr. Badawi, but it, um, sadly, I don't know if that's coming anytime soon, but um, you know, we, our prayers go out to his family as well. Um, so one thing we're looking forward to covering, though, are there's going to be some, go over some of the new privacy laws, including the online eraser law. But one thing I, I want to highlight in the few minutes we have left is we, this is now starting our fifth year, as we mentioned, and we'd love to have your input. If there's anything you think we've done particularly well, let us know. If there's anything you think we've done particularly not spectacularly, <laughs> also let us know. Are there guests that you like? Are there guests that you wish we had? Um, are there topics you think we, we, should, we cover too much? Are there topics you think we don't cover enough? Um, we really like your input. You know, this is obviously uh, we're here to serve you. And if you think there's a way that we can um, expand this discussion of what's going on in, in cyber law and policy and business, um, you know, please let we're, 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 we'll step right up to it. So um, best way to reach us, I guess, is you can follow us. Um, for example, today's show we have our blog cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And um, all the information is there, background on Mark and, and the article. Um, and you can also, on Twitter, we're at Cyberlaw Radio. And just let us know what you think. Um, we appreciate the feedback we've gotten to date and um, you know, from our fans. And so um, definitely we want to hear from you. And we, you know, we have the microphone um, for just one hour of a week. And we'd love to hear what you have to say um, during the rest of the time. So... Um, and what, one other point in you know, making it this far, um, as we start our fifth year, obviously we would not have done it without the many wonderful guests who've contributed you know, their insights and their wisdom over this period. And more importantly, we wouldn't be able to do it without the skill and the dedication of our producer, Brasco, and uh, who I thank um, for all his hard work. And, uh, and putting together shows sometimes under crazy circumstances, um, but uh, we seem to have gotten it done. So, um, but that's all we have for this week. And I want to thank you for listening in for our first issue of our first of our fifth year here. And um, this is Ben and Kelly with Internet Law Center. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. Um, we cover a lot of these issues, and we're happy to to serve you. So um, you can always check us out. And um, but be, keep following the Cyber Law and Business Report here, uh, Webmaster Radio. You can download our mobile app, or you can listen to us as any number of other services such as iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and um, so please listen in and stay in touch. This is Ben and Kelly. Quarters adjourned. Have a wonderful week. Until next week, we'll look forward to another discussion of Cyber Law and Business right here on the Cyber Law Business Report on WebmasterRadio.fm. Be safe, everyone.
This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.